I do hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 11. This morning we will finish chapter 11, and next week we will begin chapter 12. So we are making our way through the book. You know, whether we consciously think about it or not, there's a question that everyone is asking and answering every day, probably more than you realize. A question that we carry with us into almost every situation that we're constantly asking and answering. There's constant evaluation of this question in our minds. The question I'm talking about is the question of authority. You ask and you answer it all the time, whether you know it or not. Think about this. Maybe you're a person who wakes up in the morning, and maybe as you're making your coffee or getting your eggs, you, you flip on network news. Maybe you, before you're even out of bed, you grab your phone and you click on a news app. As you start taking in the news, you're making a decision, aren't you? About authority. Just constant evaluation. Who has the authority to speak into certain issues? Is this person someone who has authority over this issue or should they be listened to? We make this decision about who we're going to trust, who we're willing to listen to, who we're willing to obey. That's just maybe the first five minutes of your day. And then you go to work and there's all these ways that you're thinking through this issue of authority. Who has the authority to make this decision or who has the authority to make that decision? Who can put me on a project or who can take me off of a project? Who do I go to for this and who do I go for that? Who has the authority? And so whether you realize it or not, we're always evaluating. Who should we listen to? Who are we called to listen to? Who is worth listening to? Big ways and small ways. If you're on the phone with a customer service representative, what do you want? You want the person who has the authority to fix whatever you're calling about. Give me that person. Give me the one who has the authority. As we think about the last year, the rules and regulations of pandemic, there's been this constant conversation about who has authority. Who can tell us what we should do, must do? Who makes decisions and policies? We can go to an even bigger scale, the Supreme Court, and recognize that almost every question they ask or they're asked to answer is a question of authority. Does a person or a business have the right or the authority to, to do this or to do that or to function in a certain way? I think you get the point. This is something that's always going on. There's this constant evaluation. Who has authority? And then the question that must come right behind that, because it's one thing to acknowledge that there's an authority. The other question is, will we submit to that authority? Of course, by nature, we're people who want to resist authority. Well, this morning as we come to the Gospel of Mark, there are issues like this on the table. Who has authority? And are we willing to submit to the one who has the ultimate authority? And of course, we're in church, no surprise. You saw where this was going. We're talking about the authority of Jesus, right? This is much bigger than what news channel we choose to watch, and it's even much bigger than what the Supreme Court decides. The question is, do we recognize the authority of Jesus and do we submit to the authority of Jesus? And maybe you've recognized that as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, this is one of the major themes that goes from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 16. If you went home this afternoon, you could do this. This would not be crazy. 
You could go home this afternoon and read the Gospel of Mark. Take you about an hour and a half probably. And if you read through the Gospel of Mark with this in mind, this is a book about authority. You would see it everywhere. From the beginning to the end, Jesus has come announcing his authority and then people have to make decisions. Do we recognize him for who he claims to be or do we reject him? So we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, we've recognized it is a decisive issue, or divisive issue. On one hand, there's those who see him and have no doubt. We could go back to chapter 2, think way back, it's over a year ago. Chapter 2, Jesus gets up to one of the first times recorded when he's speaking publicly. So he's in the synagogue in Capernaum. Not many people know who he is, but here's this teacher who stands up to teach in the synagogue Let me just read for you from chapter 1, verse 22. Mark records that the people were astonished. Astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority. Not like the scribes. Think about that. They're used to going to the synagogue. They're used to hearing teachers week in, week out, sometimes day in and day out. They're in the synagogue. Another teacher, another scribe. And now here's this Jesus something different about him authority and then this happens i'm glad this has not happened in our one of our services as jesus is speaking a man stands up and begins to yell at jesus rebuking him he's a man possessed with a demon would have stopped most teachers in their tracks but not christ he rebuked the demon the demon comes out and then mark records this in verse 27 the people were all amazed and they started asking among themselves saying, what is this? A teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. So we go back all the way to the beginning of the book to the beginning of the recording of the ministry of Christ and we see this, people see this is one who has authority. Maybe where it's most evident is when Jesus starts walking along the shore And calling men, hey, come and follow me. And we see men who walk away from their boats, walk away from their jobs, walk away from everything they've known and trusted. They follow Jesus. Why? Why would people follow him at just a command? They recognized this is one who should be listened to, submitted to. They see Jesus as a person who has authority, who should be obeyed. And we could go all the way through the Gospel of Mark and over and over see those who perceive and recognize the authority of Christ. But we can also go through and see the opposite, that there are those who refuse to acknowledge it. They're skeptical. They have questions. Some even set out to prove that he has no authority at all. Remember chapters 3 and 4? There's all these different situations where the Pharisees come to Christ. First about the Sabbath. Do you remember what Jesus says? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. They question him regarding fasting. Over and over these challenges from religious leaders, and we see this divide, that there are those who see Jesus and believe his authority, and that there are those who push back and deny it. The obvious transition here, okay? That the same is still true today. We all have a decision to make. We can see the work of Christ. We can read of the work of Christ. And the question is, do we recognize him as someone with authority? And will we submit to his authority? 
And maybe we say, yes, Jesus is a person of authority. But to what extent do we allow that to go? How much of our lives do we allow to come under the umbrella of his authority? We'll come back to that. But first, let's remember where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 11. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we are working our way now day by day through the rest of the Gospel through Passion Week. It's this final week of the life of Christ. Three weeks ago, we looked at what happened on Sunday, right? Triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem to this great fanfare, palm leaves and coats on the ground, people singing the Psalms, welcoming the King. Then on Monday, Jesus goes back into Jerusalem again, and this time it's a different scene. This time he goes into the temple, and he makes a bit of a scene. He clears the temple. That same day he rebuked, the, or excuse me, he cursed the fig tree. Remember, the tree dies. That's all on Monday. Tuesday morning, this is where we were last week, they're walking back into Jerusalem. They see the fig tree, it's dead, and there's this conversation between Jesus and his disciples about faith. So as we pick up now, we are mid-morning on Tuesday, okay? So several weeks, we've made it about two and a half days. We pick up in the middle of chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 27 through 33. Hear the word of God. They came again to Jerusalem, and as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Which means it's true, and it's given to us for our benefit. So we ask that God would add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. So on Monday of Passion Week, Jesus goes into the temple, and he makes an announcement, or rather a pronouncement of judgment. Flips over tables, runs out the merchants, makes it known that this is not what God intended. The system of man-centered religion, of works-based righteousness, this wasn't God's plan. And Jesus announces that judgment is coming against the house of Israel. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's an incredible scene. But what's maybe equally incredible is that the next day, Jesus goes back. You thought about this? One day he goes into the temple, flipping tables, running people out, making this pronouncement of judgment, and the next day he goes back. As we pick up in our passage today, he's walking through the temple. And it's at this point that he's approached by this posse of political and religious leaders. 
Verse 27, he's walking in the temple and the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now we've seen this group of people before. They've constantly trying to silence Christ to get him off the scene. We've even seen that when he was away from Jerusalem, this, this group would come and find where he was and, and challenge him, trying to discredit him to prove that he wasn't trustworthy. But this is a new level, isn't it? Because now he's not off somewhere in Galilee saying these things. Now he showed up in the temple and from their vantage point, he's on their turf. So we get this conversation. They approach Jesus in the temple and they ask him, what gives you the right? Isn't that the question? By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you authority to do them? And in some sense, this could be a really broad question. It could be about his teaching. It could be about all the claims he's made. But I think it's more specifically about what he did yesterday, right? You came in here yesterday. You flipped over tables. You started announcing judgment. Who gives you the right? Where's your authority from? It's actually a really fair question, isn't it? Jesus shows up in the temple making these pronouncements of judgment. It's, it's not a bad question. Except, it's not an honest question. The reason I say it's not honest is because this is a question that Jesus has answered over and over. By this point, there's really no secret about who Jesus is claiming to be. Even if we stay in the Gospel of Mark, we can see Jesus doing and saying things that make it clear that his authority is from God. Maybe one of the best examples is back in chapter 2. I wonder if you remember this. These men bring their friend to Jesus to be healed. He's paralyzed. So he's laying there before Christ, expecting a healing, right? But what does Jesus say to him? He says, your sins are forgiven. Here's Jesus in front of all these people. And instead of pronouncing healing, he says, you're forgiven. Excuse me. We see this in verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus has done something that they recognize this is, this is different. It's one thing to heal someone. It's another thing to say you can forgive sins. And Jesus perceives what they're talking about. We read in verse 8 of chapter 2. Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves... He said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He heals him, but the healing is actually proof 
that he can do what he says he can do. What we have here is Jesus identifying himself with God, making the claim that he has the authority of God. And this is just one of many examples. Jesus claims authority. We see it here. We see it more clearly in other Gospels. John speaks to this issue a lot of Jesus' claims of authority. Let me just give you two examples, both from John chapter 5. First, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For what the Father does, the Son does likewise. Don't miss what's, what he's saying. He's saying, I have this relationship with the Father, with God. I work in conjunction with him. This is an incredible claim, isn't it? We can skip just a little further down to verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. So, so get this. Throughout his ministry, Jesus has not held anything back. He has made this clear. I am sent by the Father. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. And this is the point. That is, Jesus comes into the temple, and they ask him, who gives you the right? Who gives you the authority? This isn't an honest question. It's not curiosity. No, this is an attempt to trap Christ. These are men who are settled in their minds about Christ, who are ready to get rid of him. They're trying to strengthen their case. They're trying to get him to say in the temple courts, in front of all these people, things that they can call blasphemy. They know his claims of authority. They're trying to trap him. Now, let's just stop here for a second. We've got this scene, Jesus being confronted by these Jewish leaders. And we can see what they're doing. They've heard his claims. There's no question about who Jesus has said he is. Their goal is to discredit him. And this is something that we can all be tempted to do. Sure, we've heard the claims of his authority. We know who Jesus is. We even know the things that he has called us to do. But how often do we try to find reasons to dismiss his authority? To rationalize away his authority over our lives. Maybe we even convince ourselves that he does not have full authority. So we start drawing lines. He has authority here, but not there. I'm fine. We, we can go to Jesus with spiritual things. That's, that's one thing. But I'm not sure about all the, the moral parameters. Who is Jesus to tell me how to handle my relationships? Or who is Jesus to speak to sexual ethics? Things have changed so much over 2,000 years. Does he really have authority there? And if we're not careful, we become just like these religious leaders trying to discredit the authority of Christ. Trying to dismiss his teaching, saying he can speak to this, but not to that. He can have this part of my life, full submission here, but not over here. These men had come to Christ with questions about authority, but they weren't honest questions. And so Jesus responds, we see in verse 29. 
Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, maybe you're like me. The first time I read this and even the second and third time, it sounds a little bit like he's trying to be evasive, right? He's changing the subject. He's avoiding the question. If you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. But this was actually a really common form of conversation. Religious leaders often ask questions or answer questions with questions. So this is not uncommon and it would not have caught them off guard. The content of the question did, but not the method of argument. And what I hope you'll see is that while he asks a question and does not make a statement, he very much makes a statement through his question. So let's look at the question more carefully. Maybe you'll understand what I mean by that. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So what's he doing? He's going back and asking them a question about someone who they've already made a judgment about. John the Baptist had come and by and large the people of Israel had accepted him as a prophet from God. It's the one who spoke from God. It's the one who could be trusted. So they come to him and say, what gives you the authority? He says, let's go back. Let's talk for just a minute about John. Was he sent from God or was he sent by men? The verse actually says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? To speak of his baptism, he's the one who comes announcing the need for baptism. So this really speaks of the whole of his ministry. When he says, is it from heaven? It's a shorthand way of saying, is it from God? This is the question. Who was John's authority? Who sent John? By whom was John sent? And it's not an evasion and it's not an unrelated question. Jesus isn't changing the subject. He's pushing them for consistency. Remember, John came testifying about Christ. Remember this, that John the Baptist is the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And do you remember what happened when John baptized Jesus? In John chapter one, we get the testimony of John the Baptist of what he saw and what he heard when that baptism took place. John one, John the Baptist bore witness I saw a spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John said this, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, there's no question in his mind about who Christ is. So now, Jesus goes to the religious leaders and he asks them this question. Do you believe that John was sent by God or by men? And here's the subtext. Because if you believe that he's sent by God, you have your answer. John's authority was from God. John testified that I am the son of God. If you believe in John, you must believe in me. 
You understand the logic? Maybe you recognize the dilemma these men are in. Mark actually details it for us in verse 31. They discussed this with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe? But if we say from man, well, then they're afraid of the people for they all held that John was a prophet. Don't miss the wisdom of Christ here. They asked a question. If he had come straight out and said, my authority is from God, I am the son of God, they would have called blasphemy and they would have turned the crowds against him. Jesus in his wisdom comes from a different angle and he puts them on the spot. If they admit that John was sent by God, then they have to confess that you are in fact who he said you were. But if they say, say that he's not from God, then they have to deal with the crowds who will disagree. He puts them in a situation that they can't get out of. Let's take a second here before we move on to consider that often we find ourselves in a similar dilemma. Here's what I mean. We come together and we sing and we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord. That he's the one over all heaven and all earth and he's the one who's even over my life. But when it comes to day-to-day -day situations, decisions, often we try to live as if his authority doesn't matter at all. Because it doesn't apply to this situation. So when it's to our benefit, we herald the authority of Christ, but if we're not comfortable with his commands, then we try to walk it back. You say, Jesus says that we should forgive as we've been forgiven, but my situation, it's different. So we decide based on the situation where we can sidestep or go around the authority of Christ. Yes, Jesus says that we should be generous, that we should give sacrificially, but surely the current economic climate puts an asterisk on all of that, right? Surely exceptions can be made. Fill in your own situation. At what place do you take the commands of Christ and decide that maybe he didn't really mean what he said, or maybe his authority isn't quite as far-reaching? Deep down, we know we're not consistent. We're like these religious leaders. If we get called on the carpet, our dishonesty is revealed. He's either Lord, overall, the one with supreme authority who must be obeyed, or he's not. I wonder if you, like me, have the words of C.S. Lewis in your mind at this point. Do you remember this section? I've, I've read it for you before, I think. It's in mere Christianity, and let me just read this paragraph for you. He writes this. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm raised to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept the claim that he's God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the kinds of things that Jesus said would not be a great teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of someone who says they're an egg or else the devil of hell himself. So make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God, or he's a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great teacher. He did not leave us that option. He did not intend to. Do you understand the logic of that? We can come and say he's kind of Lord, but he's not given us that option. He's either Lord or he's not. We either recognize his authority or we don't. And I, I, I know you, church, and I know that deep down we all acknowledge his lordship. But the question is, in what ways day to day do we try to pull back and say, not here? You don't have authority here. These are my kids, right? This is my money. This is my life. So often we're like these religious leaders. And when Jesus pushes, we recognize that we've not been consistent. So we come back to the text, we see these leaders have a decision to make. How will they answer his question? And what they choose is more or less to not answer. At least not with either one of the options that he's given them. Verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. So Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We don't know. And again, they're not being honest. They have opinions. They have beliefs about John and about Christ. But they're trying to avoid a fallout. They don't want to admit that he's God and they don't want the crowds to turn on them. They basically have refused to answer. We see a quiet, stubborn resistance. And we're not serving ourselves well if we don't push ourselves to put ourselves in this situation. And we must ask ourselves the question, are we willing to confess that Jesus is Lord? He's given them this opportunity and they refused. What will we do? Will we stand and confess that he's Lord? And the follow-up is, will we submit to him? Or will there be situations where we cower because of the fear of man? They refuse to answer because of the crowds, and maybe you've been in the same situation. Where here in this room or in the privacy of your home, you gladly and freely submit to the authority of Christ. But at work, when others look around, when others can see, you recoil. What about this? Maybe you have a Christian brother or sister who has come alongside of you and tried to encourage you towards obedience. You confess with your mouth that he's Lord, but on this particular issue, you, you answer the same as they did. I don't know. Maybe as you read the scriptures, you come to a part that you recognize you're living in disobedience to and you say, I don't know. If that's you, I want to encourage you to remember. You can fool your friend 
but you cannot fool God. They fooled the crowds. They may have saved face on that day, but Jesus knew their hearts, and he knows yours. But here's the good news, church. Would you hear the good news? That even if you've spent your whole life rebelling against his authority, pushing back against him in every way, he responds to those who come to him in humility and faith. In this story, we have men who have dug in their hills, and maybe you've done the same. Can I plead with you? Don't let pride stand in your way. Don't let the fear of what others will say or what others may do to stand in your way. This is too important. The Bible says, maybe you're thinking, I've been caught. <laughs> We've all been caught. We're all sinners. We're all rebels. But Jesus came, God in flesh, to die so that all who repent of their sins can be saved. And you don't have to muster up the strength to submit. He'll give you the grace. But if you don't acknowledge him, if you don't submit to him, then you have no hope. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Again, in this text, we see a group of men who didn't believe and would not acknowledge the authority of Christ. At the same time, we see Jesus puts them in a situation where their authority, their authority, is called into question. It's ironic. They're rejecting the authority of Christ, acting as authorities, but with one question, he sends them into a tailspin. And as the story ends, we see that they don't answer, and so Jesus doesn't answer. And yet, this is not an evasion and it's not an avoidance. Jesus has made it clear who is the authority. He's the one with the authority. Well, we submit to him. How do we know he's the authority? We've seen this interaction. He is a good debater. He gets one over on these religious leaders. Is this proof? Not in itself. This happened on a Tuesday. On Thursday of that week, Jesus is betrayed and arrested. On Friday, he's killed. Perhaps that's the end of his authority. Oh, no. See, on that following Sunday, after three days in the grave, he rose again. And this is how we know for sure. Jesus is who he said he is. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we must answer. Do we acknowledge him? Do we submit to him? Will we live for ourselves? Will we live in fear of what others may say? Or will we submit to him? And I recognize that, by and large, this has been a sermon about submission and surrender. And you think, this sounds hard and it does not sound fun. But can I just let you know this? 
There is no greater joy to be had than to live in full submission to the authority of Christ. This is where joy is found. And the one to whom we're called to surrender is the one who knows us and loves us and desires good for us. His commands are good. And you may struggle to submit to them, but know this, what he's calling you to is for your good. It is for your joy and it is for your eternal hope. He died for you. He rose from the dead to secure your hope. You can trust him with today. You can trust that his commands are good. Let's acknowledge him, not only with our lips, but with our lives.